Hi, Tech Setters. We recorded our first interview with Vicki Phillip back in March. As fans of Brooklinen, we related to Vicki's founder story of seeing a gap in the market and filling that space with a great product. Vicki's story was also unique in that before she was a startup founder, she was in law school and in fashion. So Sam and I did some digging and we sent Vicki a cold email months in advance asking her if she'd be interested in being on TechSetters. As Sam often advises me, there's no harm in following up because you never know where a kindly worded email will take you. I've learned to trust my curiosity and that people appreciate when you show interest in learning more about them. Just one email can open up endless possibilities. So embrace the discomfort and just press send. Tech setters wouldn't exist without Sam DMing Carly. And part of being a tech setter is being fearless. So we challenge you to be fearless and enjoy the first recorded interview we did for Tech Setters Season 1. Samantha Weiner. I'm Jenny Wang, and you're listening to Tech Setters. Brooklyn and subway ads dominated my commute when I first moved to New York. I was not disappointed when I got my first set of sheets from Brooklyn. Vicki Fulop, co-founder of Brooklyn, left law school behind on a quest to understand why luxury bedding was so expensive. Vicky's curiosity and conviction led her to bootstrap her own luxury bedding company on Kickstarter. Vicky shares her journey of perseverance and scrappiness that has led her to growing Brooklyn into a $100 million brand. So Vicky, the founding story of how you and Rich started Brooklyn was very interesting to us because it shows how ideas can be born in situations where you just aren't satisfied with the status quo. And six years ago, you were on this vacation, you slept on these extravagant sheets and you wanted to buy them. And after some research, you found that they were way overpriced at $800. So instead of just caving in and buying them, why did you decide to create your own product? Rich was in business school and I was the only one working. I was working an entry-level job. We definitely could not afford to buy those sheets and pay our rent and buy food. They were way too expensive for us. And then we were trying to find our way to those sheets, kind of back-channeling our way. So that's kind of how it started, where we were trying to figure out, can we get them directly from the manufacturer? Like, that will be more affordable because they're really great. They're really soft. And then we kind of went into, where is the direct-to-consumer solution for sheets? At this point, it was 2012, and it really didn't exist so that was that kind of kicked us off on the search. And then we were like this idea of direct to consumer betting, where if you cut out the middleman, you could make it a lot more affordable. We were like, this idea should exist, it doesn't exist. And it wasn't just kind of a one moment thing where we decided to make them on our own versus just go out and get them but kind of a process of researching and being curious. And then it being something that came to us as a void in the market that we thought we really could fill. I'm so impressed by how you took this personal experience with finding a product that you fell in love with, but was astronomically expensive. (laughs) And you were determined to find a new path and say, let's figure out how we can get this in a way that's affordable. Was there a particular moment where this went from just an investigation into you deciding that you wanted to make this a real business? During investigation, right, we were like, we think this idea should be a business, but can it be a business? So I think that if there was ever an aha moment, maybe that was it. 
And then we started researching multiple kind of things at once, how textiles are made, you know, what is that process to bring them to life? Where are they made? How much does it cost to make them? Who makes them, etc. And so I think the decision was after studying the supply chains and, and the process and identifying that there were um, inefficiencies in it, that the department store markup was was pretty high, that the supply chains hadn't been disrupted in about 50 years. People are shocked that we were so young looking into this business that everyone, you know, kind of had been doing the same thing for we were being told by manufacturers for 50 years. So so we identified that we it was a viable idea that if we were able to succeed on our idea that we could really, um, you know, cut the cost significantly, but still deliver a luxury product. So that was kind of the aha moment, like, yes, it's possible. Now, how can we <laughs> make it happen? And clearly the venture capitalists thought so because you just raised a 50 million new rounds of funding. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, well, we did now. At first, actually, people still had thought it was a crazy idea. Uh, we did try to raise funding and we got kind of nose all over the place. So we, we couldn't fund it uh, that way. So we took our idea to Kickstarter. And for anyone that doesn't know, this was still while my husband, Rich, who founded the company with me, was in business school. And I was working in PR, um, in beauty public relations. Basically, I was like, I know how to bring something to market and to create buzz around a brand. I think his skill set was really in financials and operations and figuring out logistics, the supply chains, the how do you actually bring a business to life? And we kind of put that together and decided we would try to fund it and prove the concept out sort of by Kickstarter campaign. By then, we had found a factory that was willing to sort of take a chance on us. They said that they would basically, if we gave them a purchase order for product, they would put it, you know, on the, on the back of a larger supply run. So that helped us have uh, smaller, usually if manufacturers have minimum order quantities that allow, allowed us to kind of get around that. Um, so we had developed a prototype uh, of bedding. We kind of went back into it as customers of what is the texture that we want? What is the feeling? Um, what is the aesthetic that we're looking for? Always had a point of view on that. Um, we wanted something really minimal, clean, kind of masculine, feminine. So we basically, we prototyped a ton. Um, we used just a little bit of uh, friends and family funding that we had on that. Not venture capital size funding, just a few thousand dollars basically to create products like samples. And from that, we uh, sent our product around to a bunch of bloggers. We like got into a zip car and just delivered them to, to writers basically. And we said, hey, we're going to launch this on Kickstarter. We had our friends help us make a video. You know, if you like this product, please share our story. And that they loved the product. That was like the first thing that was amazing. Um, so a lot of people actually liked the product. We sent out to them cold and wrote about the fact that our campaign was launching on Kickstarter. That helped get the word out. And our Kickstarter campaign, we had a goal of $50,000. Um, we had that goal because we thought that was a huge number that would be like, that's way beyond what, you know, friends and family would buy. So this will see if there's a real like interest of people that, for this product. Um, and we blew away that goal. We raised almost $250,000. So that basically was what went to fund our first purchase order of sheets. It's it's such an incredible story because I would have no idea where to even start. What were the missing pieces even? How do you even know that you need to figure out the suppliers or the 
fabrics or who to talk to next? How did you start to build that checklist of information you needed in order to get to the prototype? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, the best advice that was given to me is just start somewhere. So it was kind of creating a checklist. Like if we want to start a betting company, we have to make the betting somewhere. Okay. Like Google, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. So it really started with that kind of who manufactures them, Googling, asking people if they know someone that does. And, you know, someone eventually, if you ask your whole network, ask on Facebook, ask on email, somebody knows somebody that they'll introduce you to. Um, And then from there, you know, we would, we basically would say this is, we got introduced to a lot of people. Some couldn't work with us. Maybe our, you know, our order quantity would have been too low or some too high. Um, but we learned basically through Googling and just talking to people where textiles are made and then asking questions of what's the smallest amount of product that you would be willing to make because we couldn't obviously commit to huge quantities. Um and giving them, you know, pieces of fabric and kind of saying, we want it a little bit softer. We want it a little bit firmer uh, or crisper. You have just reading about textiles and what levers are that you pull to achieve something, a certain feel. Um, And I had always had an interest in that. So it was kind of just talking then to the manufacturers and they were saying, okay, well, we can, you know, use this size thread instead of that size thread to achieve this or this weave versus that weave to achieve this. And it was just talking and going back and forth with them, prototyping uh, to kind of get it to that place. But it's really you just start somewhere, you start Googling, talking to people, and you start chipping away at it kind of that way. I love that you leverage your network in order to figure out what needed to be done. And you must have such a diverse network given your unique background from going to law school to working at a brick and mortar retailer like Tory Burch to founding Brooklyn in, in the same era as companies like Warby Parker and Everlane. How did those experiences influence your network and how you thought about building your company? So at Tory Burch, I was a PR intern and executive assistant for a little while. Um, but I think I learned a ton there just observing um, and listening to to those above me. Um, I think there I learned, they run an incredible business, but it's a very strong brand. It has a really deep connection with its customers. So I would say really lasting learning that stuck with me. They do everything they can for their customer. And I think having a distinctive voice, visual beyond, even in their stores, if you think about their orange doors or the textures that you see, the colors that you see, um, they're very um, consistent and very Tory. That's, you know, the only way I can describe it, like, you know it when you see it. So building that kind of brand that is extremely identifiable and that has that pull um is is very important and everlane too we loved with them i loved that they were just making cool simple products uh and making it very easy to get them and how transparent they were with what they were making and you know what it cost to make that was a really great customer experience as well so i think from those places i just took away um what customer experiences really landed with me um, and tried to incorporate that into the brand that we were going to build. Customer experience is such a fundamental part of Brooklinen. One of the things that I've always loved is your subway ads. I think they're the best. <laughs> and, and I'm just curious when you're thinking about the customer and this experience, we've seen 
a lot of, you mentioned Tory Burch has that iconic orange when you walk into their stores or the textiles and the fabrics that you recognize immediately. And online retail is a bit more difficult, especially when you're selling sheets and it's all about the touch and feel to create that same sense of connection. How do you think about online versus offline for Brooklinen? Yeah, so it's really important for us to be able to tell visual stories and to convey how something's going to feel with words. <laughs> so we do our best to kind of to achieve that. So for that customer experience, if we are primarily, you know, only digital right now, we have to make it really easy for the customer to be willing to try us. And that means, I think, uh, flexible return policies so that if you don't like something, for example, you know that Brooklyn is going to kind of take care of you and, and you can set it back and try something else. You really want to feel, I think, as a customer taken care of by the brand. So we try to do that. And yeah, and with our branding, with the way that we talk to people, I didn't see this out in home brands uh, when we started. And I was like, I really want to make visuals that people can see themselves in, not just pictures of beds. Like, I want to, you know, kind of reflect life back at people that felt relatable to me and, and make people chuckle. Um, also, it's just like forming, forging an emotional connection. There's people behind the brand. So I wanted, you know, the people looking at it in the subway ads to be able to see that and to see themselves hopefully reflected in our advertising. Definitely worked for me. I totally saw myself in every single one of those subway ads. <laughs> And building off of that and thinking about the customer journey and the relationship you have with the customer, what role does data play in how you craft that experience? We use data in a lot of ways. I mean, for one, we do A-B testing um, in pretty much every facet of our company, Um, A-B testing being like, you know, do people want to see color swatches on the product detail page? in little circles or do they not you know how do people like to swipe the pictures where should our where be you know to click by i could go on about it forever but we can't a b test every possible thing that you might experience on our website even the color of the shop now button for example or its size so there's that just to make it as frictionless and as beautiful as possible. Um, and that only gets more complex as we get more categories because we have to try to keep our customer journey seamless. But um, with more categories, there are more places to sort of get lost on the site. So we have to always balance and think how we can streamline that. Um, and also we do the same with email. You know, we'll test everything from subject lines to, you know, do people want to see pictures? So they not, we play around with what we think will work best, but we always test that as well. And then of course we survey our customers all the time. We really want to hear from them, what kind of content they want to see from us and maybe what category they might want to see us come out with. That was part of the reason why we came out with loungewear. It wasn't something that we necessarily were going to jump into first, but we had pulled our customers and we listed out a bunch of categories and they ranked loungewear at the top. Um, you know, we take all of the data in, we collect it and then we aggregate it, you know, use it for marketing. We survey our customers on how they heard from us and that will inform our knowledge of what is working and what isn't in terms of channels. So everything we can test and anything, you know, that we can learn from our customers in, in what's working for them and what isn't, we take into account deploy. 
When you're collecting data from your customers, have you had any conversations about being more environmentally friendly? I mean, Sam and I have been following a lot of the latest innovation in the worlds of materials engineering, and there's everything from environmentally friendly dyes to comforters made out of recycled plastic bottles. Do you think that's the direction you'd want to steer Brooklyn in? Absolutely. And actually, there's some cool stuff now that I think we could do a better job of sharing that we already do with environmentally friendly that I think people would like. Um, our factory in Israel actually runs on all renewable fuel. So that's pretty cool already. I know we need, we need to message that out more, but so that's one that's pretty cool. And then there's something else that we do that um, all of our sheets that come as returns, like boxes that have been opened, we obviously can't resell. But they do not go to landfills and they do not get burned or destroyed, which is something that happens in the garment industry sometimes um, where people don't want to dilute the brand or hurt the brand somehow by donate. We donate. So we work with this brand called Three Good 360 that works with nonprofits across the country um, doing disaster relief. There's a lot of disaster relief now. But also if there's hurricanes or people that are they're a homelessness problem, basically. All of our returns that can't be resold, we donate through Good360. So it's really environmentally friendly, I think, in that way that at least um, we are lessening our waste footprint, but we're, you know, very aware of it. And we, you know, we want all of our packaging to be recyclable. Um, our plastic bags are, our boxes are. Um, and there are innovations in textiles also that we're looking into. We have, uh, you know, our sheets are now made with cotton. <laughs> Um, and linen, um, but there are innovations that are interesting that are happening with sheets made from hemp. We haven't made those yet, but we're constantly basically looking at ways that we can be more environmentally friendly. And some I'm excited that we've already implemented, you know, have been doing for some time. So as you're finding these partners for different facets of your business, how do you think about getting that background information and understanding their values or how they work before selecting these partnerships for your business in terms of trying to make sure you're working with people across consistent values? Um, that's a great question. Um, a lot of times we look for third-party kind of validation, like third-party certifications. That's another thing we do with our betting is that we work with Ecotex, um, which is an international body that audits textiles for being free of harmful chemicals. So they're like an international regulator that you willingly work with because they're in the United States, for example, there's no no regulation on textiles, chemicals used in them. So they certify that you're free of harmful chemicals, et cetera. We try to replicate that process as much as we can with other partners that we work with, you know, see who they are certified by, right? That will be a non-partial kind of auditor check that they're doing things the right way. And we go out and visit ourselves also to see everything is as it is said it is. Wherever we can, getting uh, long-winded, we look for a third party that is a body that is looking into these things and making sure they're being done as ethically as possible. Looking at the future of Brooklinen, you launched Loungewear, which was an amazing success. And you also recently launched this new curated marketplace called Spaces. Can you tell us a bit more about what that is and how you're trying to inspire traditional retailers to 
embrace the digital world. I'm really excited about Spaces. So Spaces is basically our curated marketplace of products for your home that range from designers really small, like individual ceramicists, um, to to companies that are bigger, like Gestalten, which is a coffee table uh, book brand. It's, it's just a way for you to be able to style out the rooms in your home um, and to shop for them really easily. I really love it because I think that it's nice to be, to be able to have really hand-picked and curated items in your house, but that it can feel a little bit cookie cutter if it's all from the same brand. So this way we can kind of do the hard work for our customers and put together a look that's really awesome that they can shop um, individually or if you're kind of moving and you're not trying to kind of meticulously style out your home one at a time. Uh, We've done it for you and you can buy the space with the click of a button and people have done that too. It's really cool. We want to serve different aesthetics, but kind of with our eye um, and our point of view. It makes so much sense because I get so overwhelmed decorating my apartment, especially now that I'm spending so much more time in it. I'm curious how you're thinking about the industry as a whole or the role that Brooklinen can play in terms of helping create this broader lifestyle brand or shaping people's decisions in those ways. I think we can be a great vehicle for discovery. And I really love the fact that we're working with some smaller designers because we have a lot of customers that we can introduce them to and help create beautiful spaces and help people discover um, some really talented artists along the way. And there's, you know, bigger brands too, but I love that you can kind of mix them all together and have a really exciting balance in your home, beautiful home. So yeah, I think, I think we can be a really awesome vehicle for discovery and I'm excited about what's next. Yeah, it's so it's so amazing when you're able to shine a spotlight on people that are earlier in their their process yeah. of becoming more known. Was there someone before Kickstarter that was your initial champion for Brooklinen or someone that gave you that initial validation or traction that helped you and Rich figure out that this was worth pursuing? That's a great question. I know I say that you guys have lots of great questions. Um <laughs> I am not sure that there was just one person. I think, honestly, it might have been a little bit the opposite where people were like, why she? It's, <laughs> it's so random. Or they thought so for us. Um, but we just really loved them. And I've always loved design and fashion myself personally. And when I was little, I always kind of wanted to work in design. So I can't say there was specifically a person that championed us, but it was really like, we want to do this. We, we feel strongly that we have an eye for it. We really are passionate about this product and we want to bring it to life. Um, but I, I think I had personally always wanted to work in design and this was a way to kind of to get in there and we had a vision and we just were determined to create it. But I think it was the opposite. I think people were like, this is crazy. No one's going to want to shop for sheets online because they need to feel them and we were like no you you can you can you know communicate the the feeling and we shop online everybody shop you know we just believed in it so i want to take us to our signature question we love to ask about actionable advice so what is one piece of concrete actionable advice that, that you would give yourself 10 years ago my advice to my former self would be to follow up 
more than I was comfortable with. I was always scared to follow up on an email if someone didn't answer it because I thought I would be bothering that person. And now I know that they just probably opened my email and didn't have time to get back to it or they didn't see it at all. People's inboxes are swamped and persistence really pays off. So I would say it is okay to follow up twice, three times, maybe even four times. If you don't hear back after the fourth time, they might not be interested. Um, But a lot of times that person you're reaching out to is busy or doesn't have the time at that moment to get back to you and emails get lost, but that persistence will really pay off and someone might appreciate it and say, okay, this person's really passionate. Let me get back to them. Any favorite taglines you want to share or just following up or Um, don't want to? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to bother you. Please let me know if you don't want to hear from me, but in the off chance that you do, blah, 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 whatever you have to say. I would ask, please let me know if you don't want to hear from me, but otherwise I'm going to keep following up. I so relate. Sam tells me that all the time. She's like, you just have to go for it. Make sure you're at the top of their inbox. Be persistent and remind them who you are and why they should know you. We love to end each interview with a lightning round of bite-sized questions. First one is, what are three things that are always on your desk? Other than my things that I use to work, it's hand cream, lip balm, and our Brooklinen dusk candle. What is one app you can't live without? It's FaceTime. I like to FaceTime. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) How do you get into the zone to focus? So this is a funny one. I put my headphones in and I don't even need to put my music on. It's the act of like putting my headphones in just somehow tells me that it's time to buckle down. Wait, that's literally what I do also. No joke. What was your first job ever? Can include babysitting, ice cream store, anything. First job ever was being a camp counselor and I was camp counselor slash lifeguard. What song gets you in the mood for your day? Wake Me Up Before You Go Go by Wham. Last question. I just moved cross country, as we were you know, chatting about before, and am now shopping for my new apartment. What's the hero product from Brooklinen that you recommend to first-time customers? So one is the move-in bundle because it gets you everything you need to settle in, comforter, pillows, and your bedding. Um, and the other one is a Brooklinen candle um, because I think burning a scent that you love makes a place feel like home. Well, I'm definitely going shopping after this. Thank you so much, Vicki, for this inspiring conversation. We're thrilled to have you on Tech Setters. Thank you guys for having me. Tech Setters is a Code with Classy podcast powered by If Then. If we can empower a woman in STEM, then she can change the world. 